0: Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky.
1: And I'm Betty Spaghetti.
0: And I'm Stillwell Angel. What a hitter. <laughs> the 1992 comedy-drama classic A League of Their Own famously starred Madonna as All the Way May Mortobito... And featured her Cynthia slow ballad, This Used to Be My Playground, over the closing credits.
1: The movie is a fictionalized account of the real-life All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. A League of Their Own featured an out-of-the-park ensemble cast, including Tom Hanks, Gina Davis, Madonna, Lori Petty, Rosie O'Donnell, John Lovitz, Gary Marshall, Bill Pullman, David Strithairn, just to name a few.
2: What is the
0: story behind This Used to Be My Playground? Why was it not included on the original soundtrack? And who are some of the other famous singers who wrote original songs for *A League of Their Own*?
1: Plus, a little later in the show, we'll chat with author Erin Carlson about her new book, *No Crying in Baseball: The Inside Story of a League of Their Own*. Colon big stars, dugout drama, and a home run for Hollywood.
3: All this and more on the latest episode of InSync.
1: You're gonna lose. Okay, let's just come out and say it. A League of Their Own is the best baseball movie, period.
0: I would agree, and I usually hate baseball movies, or really any sports movie. Or any sports.
1: I don't mind sports movies, I don't mind sports, and I understand that they all kind of deal with the romanticization of the game, right? Sport of kings, men of men, blah, blah, blah. Field of dreams. Field of dreams. Even in the movie Moneyball, written by Steve Zalian and Aaron Sorkin, Brad Pitt's character Billy Bean says, like, how do you not get romantic about baseball? It's fine. I
0: I could think of lots of... Well...
1: (laughs) Lots of ways. I
0: will say that A League of Their Own is probably the only movie about baseball that makes me a little bit want to play baseball. A little bit. If if it didn't involve sliding and and hurting oneself and I yeah.
1: <laughs> What if my bosoms just were to pop out?
0: Yeah. What, <laughs> what if you know just my bosoms just you know just keep flying out? Oh my god. Has there anyone who hasn't seen your bosoms?
1: So, the movie was written by Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, and not I love crediting screenwriters, but I Mm. love the name Babalu Mandel, and it was directed by Penny Marshall, director of Big, and Laverne from Laverne and Shirley. It follows the inception and first season of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It's World War II. All the men are off fighting the Germans and Japanese, and so Walter Harvey, played by Gary Marshall brother of director Penny Marshall and director in his own right of movies like pretty woman. He decides to start a baseball league featuring women mostly as a novelty, but also to placate people who are thirsting for America's pastime while the boys are at war. The movie primarily follows two of their star players, Dottie Henson, played by Gina Davis and her younger sister, Kit Keller played by Lori Petty, who get drafted by the Rockford Peaches, one of only four teams. And the rest of the Peaches are a ragtag group of girls whose sexuality is never questioned.
0: I love these girls. I don't need them, but I love them.
1: <laughs> so, real quick, some background. This is Walter Harvey's characters based on the real-life Wrigley family who own the Chicago Cubs in Wrigley Field. But... In the movie, it's changed to Harvey bars, which is like Hershey bars, because they didn't want to have to pay the Wrigley family for their naming rights.
0: Oh, fun fact. <laughs>
1: but let's round the bases of the peaches. So Dottie is a catcher. Kit is a pitcher. There's Ann Ramsey, who plays the illiterate first baseman, Helen Haley. Megan Kavanaugh as Marla Hooch at second base. Marla Hooch grew up with a single father who didn't teach her how to do her hair and makeup, but did teach her how to hit dingers. And there are several cracks at the expense of Marla's looks throughout the movie um, but she gets the last laugh by finding love in a seedy jazz bar and singing "It Had to Be You." I love Marla Hooch. I would do the entire episode yeah. about Marla Hooch.
0: Marla Hooch does win the movie in yes. many ways. Yeah, I
1: I love her so much that I almost named my last band Marla Hooch.
0: That would be an amazing band name. Like Great, no, band like name. no joke.
1: I was outvoted. I'm still I'm still salty about it.
0: Well, if you ever get another pet in your life you should oh, name Marla it Marla Hooch, Hooch. the
1: dog well that yeah. seems kind or of fucked cat. Up, actually <laughs> oh, what a hitter
0: oh it does it does okay well maybe i don't know a cat or like a but fish. yeah but that but yes great great band name
1: yes at third base rosie o'donnell as doris murphy tracy reiner the director's own daughter as betty spaghetti in left field Biddy Shram as Evelyn Gardner, and she's the mother of Stillwell Angel. She's also <laughs> the uh, woman who has trouble finding her head. It's that lump five feet above her ass. <laughs> five feet. That would make her so tall. <laughs> and last but not least in center field is all the way May Mortobito, played by the legend herself, Madonna.
0: I don't know why you bother getting dressed at all.
1: We got a lot of catchphrases in this episode. This movie is amazing. It's
0: a tight script. Yeah,
1: it's an incredible script. And the team is managed by alcoholic and marathon (laughs) pisser Jimmy Dugan, played by Tom Hanks. Dugan was in the majors and washed out in spectacular fashion, and he's not too thrilled to be managing a team of gasp girls. The season plays out with plenty of interpersonal drama. Kit and Dottie are in constant competition. Doris has a guy back home who she doesn't like because he's mean to her and not at all because she's gay, because she isn't. Why would you ever think that? <laughs> Betty Spaghetti's husband dies in war, which provides my scorchingest take of the movie, which you'll hear a little bit later. And Madonna is there for the weirdly sexual comic relief.
0: You know what Madonna's whole little spiel Like when they're talking about Shutting down the uh, the baseball team I'm not going
1: to go back to Taxi dancing that one
0: Yeah Like yeah. that whole little spiel Is like Maybe this is a scorching hot take Maybe this is controversial But I'm not sure it really like Aligns With like everything else Her character does In the movie
1: I kind of think that is funny I, feel, I yeah. think that speech is like A little bit funny
0: like She doesn't want to I, sh- I think she just overacts it <laughs>
1: Yeah, which to me giving the movie the benefit of the doubt at least mm-hmm. might be on purpose, but maybe not.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe she just doesn't want to have to like she she wants everything to be her choice in terms mm-hmm. of uh sexual encounters and nudity.
1: Why why would that wh- what a crazy idea. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think I was just mostly reacting to Madonna's complete overacting of that scene.
1: <laughs> I think I think so. She's
0: yeah,
1: she's yeah, yeah. she's pretty big in that. And at one point Evelyn blows a throw and Jimmy yells at her until she cries, which is where we get the movie's most iconic line and the title of our guest of the week, Aaron Carlson's book, No Crying in Baseball. But the musical moment that we're here to talk about this week comes from All the Way May herself. Madonna contributes the end credit song, This Used to Be My Playground.
0: Let's listen a little bit to This Used to Be My Playground before we talk about it. Tell you my first memory of this used to be my playground, sure. even even before I saw the movie. Yeah. I was at a birthday party. I think I was ten. Something like that. And the birthday party had a karaoke. And the karaoke had like, you know, those visualizations that don't line up with with whatever the song is Oh yeah, it's
1: like a sunset or something.
0: Yes. And so all I remember was someone was singing this used to be my playground and the visualization was just a a woman in a pink one piece like swimming in the pool. Right just on. she it was like it was like the the camera was kind of directly over her and she's just like gliding along in the pool underwater. And for months, years something i just associated that image with this song about that like is like matched on screen with base with the baseball scene for this movie
1: what a bizarre visualization it's
0: very confusing for me at 10 it's just it's like this is random and also like i didn't realize it was madonna because this is this is a very non-madonna song for the time period and it's definitely
1: against type
0: yeah, and because Madonna, as I'll say later in the episode when we talk with Erin, is not typically thought to be a ballad singer, even though I personally like this ballad. I think she sells it. I've always liked the song. it's it's It, it elicits the nostalgia and the bittersweet heartache that I think it wants to.
1: I don't completely think that madonna is not a ballad person especially because of her work with dick tracy and she sang sooner or later which was i think nominated for an oscar maybe won an oscar and that is like also kind of a sultry ballad but that was a work that did its best to feel of a certain time period and this used to be my playground the film starts and ends in the contemporary time and i think it's like 1988 and so what we're seeing is not what we primarily saw for the entire movie which was like the 40s but instead a more modern song so it, it feels like slightly out of place but when you kind of examine it in the context of the thing that you're watching it like does fit in it's it's an interesting musical moment for sure
0: it's like it's a it's a real tonal shift and in the music video we see a man paging through a photo album with madonna appearing on every page and uh the photo album paired with the way that the song is used in the film where over the end credits there are scenes from the 40s with the actors playing baseball Mm -hmm. and like their younger selves and then there are the older actors playing baseball with a free united and then you get scenes of the actual older
1: the real like the real
0: players from the all-american girls league and it could it could actually be confusing but somehow it works and and there's a poignancy i like it I don't know why even I was even struggling to come up with like an argument about why this is good and why it works and why I like it. But I, I honestly am at a little bit at a loss because I don't even really know. It's just uh, my heartstrings are pulled.
1: No, I, I'm completely with you and there is something really puzzling. We also can look at the context of the song and it's like, it is like super bittersweet and implies In a way that I think the rest of the movie, the text of the movie, does not imply that this is over. That this is a this is a thing that we're never going to get back. Mm -hmm. When the movie itself ends with them being honored at the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is like significantly different than it's a it's an interesting thing, not too dissimilar to Billie Eilish's song for the Barbie soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Which is this kind of breathy ballad that has taken on a life of its own. I think that the, the Billy Ives song is like slightly better. Yeah, it's better. But yeah, it's like they are not dissimilar from each other.
0: I really like that comparing. That, that's you. a good comparison. So, uh, this used to be my playground was written by Madonna as she was recording her fifth studio album, Erotica, which is just like a total
1: Whiplash.
0: Yeah, whiplash, tonal whiplash. (laughs) And she co-wrote it with Vogue producer Shep Pettibone. And Columbia Records asked Madonna, who was starring in the film, to uh, write something for the movie. She and Pettibone apparently turned the song around in just two days. Oh, boy. Which is quite quick, but I guess they were already in songwriting mode. So they just maybe had to put themselves in like a different mindset because they were already writing. That's my guess that they were just like, Oh, okay. Got it. Like,
1: yeah, turn, another yeah one out. To turn
0: it out. And during an interview in 1992 with the Guardian, Madonna described the process as quote, assignment writing, since it was totally separate from her erotica sessions. And in that same interview with the Guardian, Madonna called a league of their own quote cute adding it's not gone with the wind it's not dr Zhivago. it's no work of art it's entertaining (laughs) it's entertaining light there's some funny moments it's very sweet i mean the true story is fascinating and amazing but i think it's been candy coated
1: so Mm -hmm. madonna has a history or has a reputation at this time of being obsessed with old hollywood just take a listen to the lyrics to vogue right she's like name dropping all of these 40s and 50s bombshells that she like emulates she emulated it in dick tracy and so it's interesting that she's like well it's not the two greatest movies ever made but i guess i'll write a song for this movie and i think that that's part of this like I don't know what's the opposite of recency bias where like you don't realize the historical significance of the thing you're making because like you're just making it where right? you're mm-hmm. just like a you're just a person writing a song for a movie and I don't know if you can think of it as this is going to be the next gone with the wind or else you're like building up expectations in your head that are never going to be realized
0: I mean I, I haven't like worked on a film set but uh, I think like when you're in the midst of creating anything, you really don't want to think about what the reaction's yeah, going to be. Yeah, you're, you're splitting yeah.
1: rocks. You're, yeah. you're making sandwiches.
0: So, This Used to Be My Playground was released as a standalone single on June 15th, 92. It is not on the movie's official soundtrack due to contractual obligations. And it's probably got something to do with the fact that Madonna was signed to Warner Brothers and the soundtrack was coming out on Columbia.
1: However, this song, as you said, was June 15th. hmm The movie doesn't come out until July 1st. So even though the song isn't on the official soundtrack, it's still, the release still kind of coincides with, like, a marketing push.
0: Yes. So it's kind of um, staged. Yeah. And this used to be my playground did get added to an Olympics-inspired Barcelona gold compilation album, which came out later that summer, and it later landed on Madonna's 95 ballads comp, Something to Remember. Lyrically, this used to be my playground as a poignant slow ballad about childhood nostalgia, and that meshes nicely with the coming-of-age themes within the film and experience something formative and character-building and that thing, which in this case is playing women's ball in the 1940s, it ultimately ends because the actual league ended in what, 1953?
1: Something like that. 53, 54. 54? But it was yeah. dwindling, right? Yep. When, when the boys came back from war, there was no need for the girls to be playing right. a man's game anymore.
0: I could especially see how in the 50s it, like I could see it lasting throughout the 40s because after like 1945, you have all of this like all these recent war memories, and and I feel like the the winning of the war and the celebration probably yeah, post war like, euphoria. Yeah, the post war euphoria. Everyone wants to be active and and do what makes them happy, and and so on. And probably that mood just like carries over for the next five six years, and then you get well into the fifties where society really doubles down on asking women not not so much ask, but telling women to go back into the kitchen. Hey, look at this cool new gadget you could have in your kitchen you and and in your living room don't you want to buy this washing machine all this stuff and don't you don't you just want to be a homemaker don't you just don't you just
1: and we're also in the middle of the baby boom so all these men come home they impregnate their girlfriends and wives (laughs) and as we know from evelyn like no man would ever be considered to be responsible for their child and so these these girls can't play baseball anymore because the patriarchy has tied them ball and chain tied them to the house.
0: Unless you're Dottie who wants to have kids, And I feel like that want is totally genuine.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Dottie is unfortunately annoyingly the person that is great at everything and beautiful while doing it. And to Kit's dismay is the best at everything, including probably being a mother. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, so for the rest of the soundtrack, Music supervisor Jay Landers worked with Penny Marshall to find more, quote, contemporary artists to sing songs from the era because the movie takes place over uh, the 1943-44 season. So Carole King had already written the movie's original opening song, Now and Forever. Billy Joel covered Duke Ellington's In a Sentimental Mood. James Taylor provided a cover of 1933's It's Only a Paper Moon. And Art Garfunkel covered Two Sleepy People, a 1938 song with music written by Hoagie Carmichael and lyrics by Frank Loesser,
1: And this is like just the easy listening classics of the 80s. James Taylor, Billy Joel, Art Garfunkel, like, there isn't a ton of, like, life and energy in these musical choices. And
0: you barely even hear those songs in the film. I mean, you, the most prominent of these is has to be now and forever because it it really does like set the stage as uh older Dottie is heading off to meet up with her former teammates. But yeah, like when you hear Billy Joel and Art Garfunkel, these songs are very in the background. M- yeah. Musty pa- Dusty. Passive yeah. listening, diegetic. No one's paying attention to them. And so I actually found kind of a funny anecdote about this used to be my Playgrounds official music video, which premiered on June 30th. And as we mentioned... It features a man looking through a photo album, the pages contain different snippets of Madonna singing, and apparently the video bore resemblance to Boy George's music video for his 1987 single To Be Reborn. And in George's video he also appears on pages of a photo album performing the song. And George himself later stated in his autobiography that he was, quote, furious after watching Madonna's clip and he renamed it. this used to be my video
1: that rules <laughs> yeah i love that the two biggest like pro lgbt artists of the 80s are just like sniping at each other that rules
0: that's pretty bitchy yeah it does bear mentioning i think that madonna has never once performed this used to be my playground and she's never seemed, never and she seems disinterested in being associated with it at that time presumably because it clashed so much with her erotica era which i came along with um her photo book sex.
1: Madonna is such an interesting figure at this moment because she she is got these two wolves inside her of wanting to be this like classic dame, but also wanting to be like, I'm young, I'm forever, I'm the face of Generation X, right? Yeah. And whenever she does one thing, then she like seems to swing back into the other direction really heavily. And so yeah, so she does this used to be my playground. And then she does erotica the book sex the blonde ambition tour like all this stuff the documentary truth or dare where she's just like a wild child it's it's an interesting time for her
0: as you've said before aviv weaponized adhd
1: for sure and i think but i think that she at least if you watch the documentary, she like kind of resents different versions of her old self. And, mm-hmm. and like she's like dating Warren Beatty at the time. And Warren Beatty like shows up at one of the tours and she's like making fun of him for being old. It's, <laughs> it's really weird. And also like, I know Madonna as, as an adult woman, like I was, wasn't really conscious around <laughs> this time when she was pushing all these boundaries. Yeah. And so I'm like, this lady, this like, this lady it was this wild. And so it's like an interesting thing for me to wrap my head around, too.
0: I will say I heard a funny story from my spin days. Um, I had a coworker who went to a listening party of Madonna's in New York, and he just idolized her. And understandably so. What pop music fan doesn't idolize Madonna? Yeah. And he came back and we were all like, how was it? And he was like, it was great. Uh-oh. She wasn't. Like, because he said, I don't know what like the rest of the interaction was like. I wasn't there, but he said something like he got to say maybe one thing to her, and he was like, "Your music has meant so much to me. Thank you." And I think she he said that she responded with something like, "My music has meant a lot to a lot of people." Weird. And I was just like, "Aw." She,
1: she has always. <laughs> but had that's it so on brand. Yeah, she's had an interesting relationship with her own fame, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think we can leave it there.
0: That's another discussion for another episode. So let's talk quickly about This Used to Be My Playground and its chart performance. It was a hit in 92.
1: Despite never being performed live.
0: Mm -hmm. Madonna did earn a Golden Globe nomination for Best Original Song. It did go to number one on the Hot 100, and it became Madonna's 10th chart topping single, breaking her tie with Whitney Houston to become the female artist with the most number one singles at that time. Uh Whitney would come back though. She later tied with Madonna in the fall of 92 with her cover of I Will Always Love You.
1: Which was the biggest song on the face of the planet.
0: Yeah, I would say that has in every possible way outlasted this <laughs> used to yeah. be my playground.
1: And famously, Penny Marshall, the director of A League of Their Own, wasn't a huge fan of This Used to Be My Playground and didn't think it would be a hit similar to the things that Madonna said about the movie. Penny was like, whatever, it's going to be a whatever. And then when it went to number one, she basically shrugged it off and was like, well, what do I know? for more on penny marshall we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll call in the righty for some relief pitching aaron carlson the writer of no crying in baseball the inside story of a league of their own big stars dugout drama and a home run for hollywood joins us to talk about the behind the scenes madness that helped create this 90s classic
2: I'm Erin Carlson, writer of No Crying in Baseball. Hello, Erin. Hi. Thank you
0: so much for spending a little time with us, telling us about your book, and we're just so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Erin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your connection to A League of Their Own? Like, when did you first see it? What made you want to start writing about it?
2: So I am an elder millennial, (laughs) and I remember life before the internet, and when everybody would go and see the same movie in the theater. So one of those movies that we all saw in 1992 was A League of Their Own, and my friends and I from middle school watched it as a group, and we loved it. None of us played baseball. Very few girls played baseball then and now, but we really connected to the female camaraderie, the friendship, that victory song that annoyed the crew members on the movie, (laughs) but we loved and we sang at recess. And um, we loved that these characters, these girl ballplayers were funny and annoying and mouthy and loud and really, really good at baseball. All of the things that girls weren't allowed to be on the big screen at the time you know, and we, it was just refreshing. It was just a refreshing, funny, epic, you know, great movie. So it checked off so many boxes for me as a writer. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I will say that I personally have like a mental block when it comes to sports-themed <laughs> entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of popular zeitgeisty like, shows and and movies that I just haven't seen because it won't hold my attention, even if the person. Recommending it to me is like, but it's not oh well, it's about football, but it's not about football. I'm just like, it's got a field and it's got players. It's about football. But I love a League of Their because it's the, the writing is so quick, snappy. I was just rewatching it last night with like kind of a new a new vision because I had read a lot of interviews that you've already done to promote the book, and I was like telling my husband a little like behind the scenes, like Gina Davis almost wasn't in the movie. And Madonna wasn't (laughs) apparently all that, like, thrilled about the song she contributed and and so on and so on. But um, it is such a fun classic movie. But I also really can't wait to get into some of the areas that maybe could have been more progressive because I think it was hailed as such a progressive piece of media at the time but then there are things that even were held back just for the sake of marketing so I'm excited
2: to talk to you about that oh yes
1: it's usually mm-hmm. my job on the pod to like research the backstory and the crazy making of moments of the film so i'm I'm super glad that we have a real expert here we wanted to know like what was your journey to? going from being a fan of the film to realizing or discovering that there's enough story from behind the scenes to fill a book.
2: Oh yeah. That's the, that's the tricky part. Am I going to have enough to fill 275 pages, you know, of a book about one movie? My um, journey with that is just to do more interviews than i you know, have time. Like I did 120 interviews for this book and that's too many. (laughs) For a book like this, you really need 35, 40 interviews, but I just overdo it. Just pulling the best details as possible from a wide variety of sources so that in my anxious journalistic mind, (laughs) I can have backup storage for a book like this. But I also knew there was good stories within it. There was Madonna at the height of her Madonna-ness. Like, she was really the Taylor Swift of her time. Blonde ambition was eras. I was really attracted to the challenge of delving into this pop star um, at her peak. And also Tom Hanks was at a crossroads. He was essentially um, box office poison at the time. He had done five flops after Big, and nobody was exactly jumping up and down to cast him as Jimmy Dugan. But, you know, he wanted to gain weight. He wanted to play rude and crude and just the opposite of everything we know about Tom Hanks. And Penny persuaded the studio to cast him and the rest is history. And that secondary role as Jimmy Dugan really catapulted his extraordinary uh, winning streak, you know, Forrest Gump, you know, Philadelphia, Saving Private Ryan. And Jimmy Dugan really reignited Tom Hanks' career. So there was that story, too. And also the history of the league, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. I mean, I, I'm a history nerd, um, a little bit of a nonfiction dad. A <laughs> like, sure. I love reading about World War II, and um, I just oh wanted to write about that era, too. Me too, though. I, <laughs> I think I have super, super
0: quick little anecdote. I was once interviewing a pretty famous musician at her house, and um, she had a great a documentary made about her and she referenced it and was like, Have you seen it? And I was like, Oh, I, I haven't actually. And she's like, I understand. It's work. She was like, I like watching documentaries about like alien sightings and or something. And I was like, I like watching documentaries about World War II. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh.
2: And I love her and bless her. <laughs> like she understands how it works. Yeah. I loved kind of delving into that um history and nerding out over that. There were so many rabbit holes to jump into and this book really reaches a lot of people there's the queer history from behind the scenes that never really made it on the big screen because a lot of the original players a large number were lesbians and Penny Marshall totally you know hid that you know underneath the surface of the movie and just erased that history i think possibly out of a fear that acknowledging the queer history would affect Box office sales. And it was a different, that's not an excuse. It was a different time back then. Right. Everyone was a little more cautious.
0: I did read a great discussion in, I think it was an interview with Shondaland, where you delved into the, the lost queer history within the baseball league. And you also start to touch on race and how I think Penny Marshall attempted to course correct, but then still. Something was lost. Could you tell us a little bit more about that specifically, like the the woman that they cast in the film to uh, throw the ball to Gina Davis, who was black and obviously couldn't be on the team.
2: That was such an amazing scene and a great acknowledgement of the racial exclusion within the league. But that wasn't in the original script. You know, Lori Petty early on in production approached Penny and was like, look, I'm not comfortable with the fact that black women weren't allowed to play in the league. We need to acknowledge that. And Penny was like, yeah, yeah. Why not? That's my bad Penny Marshall (laughs) impression. And she was like, yeah, why, why not add this? The writers are always adding things. So uh, Babalu Mandel and Lowell Gans um, iconic comic duo, screenwriting duo from the late eighties, they added that scene and it was 30 seconds. But it was still extremely powerful. And to this day, it remains one of the actresses, you know, crew members' favorite scenes. It just stands out.
1: It's one of the most memorable scenes in the film, too, even though it lasts so, so, such a short period of time. Right. Let's kind of do like a beat by beat of how this movie gets to the big screen. So it, it bounced around the studios for a minute before it gets set up at Sony.
2: Yes. Getting this film to the big screen was an uphill battle. Penny Marshall became the first woman to hit 100 million at the box office with Big, and then she had like a critical hit with Awakenings, the first drama she ever directed.
1: Saddest movie of all time.
2: I know. I remember my mom crying at the final scene where De Niro was dancing, and oh my God. god. That just kills me. So um, Penny was in demand. She had the martial touch. She knew where the comedy was and also where the heart was. And audiences responded. At the same time, nobody in Hollywood wanted to make the women's baseball movie. (laughs) They were like, okay, this league ended in 1954. There was a reason for that. Nobody wanted to go see games anymore, apparently. And also, women don't play baseball. What's the audience for this? but they really wanted to work with Penny. She wasn't just a hot woman director at the time. She was a hot director. So they were like, okay, come over to Columbia. We'll let you make the girls movie. So they do the movie and the the budget was exploding. <laughs> like it, it, people in Hollywood were like, oh my God. You know, people were like, is this, is Penny going to pull this off? Because she was a talented filmmaker, but she was also known For being extremely expensive. She rolled as much as 2 million feet of film. Um, She won, (laughs) she like reached this milestone at Kodak. And somebody estimated that she rolled enough film that could wrap around Manhattan three times. (laughs) You know? And also, they were $3 million in the hole as soon as they started filming because they paid off Deborah Winger Mm. to leave the movie. Over a casting dispute.
1: Let's cock Deborah Winger.
2: Deborah Winger
0: and Madonna apparently or rather Deborah Winger was hesitant I'm trying to be diplomatic to about working with Madonna. I have a was, quote.
1: I have a mm-hmm. quote. So this is from <laughs> Penny and in an interview that she did before she passed with Kevin Smith because they were neighbors, I guess. And he just sat with her for like eight hours and, and recorded her stories. But she said that Deborah Winger came to her and said, "I didn't realize that you were doing an Elvis picture," and walked. And I guess that means that like it wasn't going to be taken seriously and that the the musicians weren't going to act very well. I guess was the implication because Deborah Winger was very famous for like beaches and. And that kind of thing. But yeah, so Deborah Winger walks as a direct result of Madonna being cast.
2: Yeah. Well, okay, Deborah Winger was an extremely prestigious actress at the time. In terms of endearment, mm. officer, and a gentleman, people loved her. Like every mom in America was obsessed with Deborah Winger. However, inside Hollywood, she had a reputation for being extremely difficult. It took her forever to decide whether she wanted to, to do a film. And once she decided to do it, she made things difficult for a lot of people, like not leaving her trailer, um, arguments with other cast members. So she did not wanna share screen time with Madonna. She was afraid that, um, yeah, it would become an Elvis movie and Madonna's presence in the movie would tarnish the quality. So um, she goes to Penny, she's like, I'm gonna make this, if you cast her, I'm gonna make this a long, hot summer. (laughs) 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 and and penny was like "Uh, nobody tells me how to cast my movie so yeah they fired deborah and paid her three million dollars but i think deborah won a league of their own you know i I just feel like everybody wins and then gina davis steps in career
1: career making for her
2: Right. I can't picture anyone else as Dottie Henson. She was amazing.
1: But the interesting thing about this is they cast Lori Petty because of her physical resemblance to Deborah Winger. And now Winger walks, and Lori Petty's like, Well, I don't look like Gina. And so they have to dye her hair. We have the eye color problem. So it created a bunch of, of other ripple effects in the movie beyond just Deborah Winger walking.
2: Oh yeah, Lori. When Deborah Winger left, um, you know the Rockford peaches were like, "Oh my God, my captain! My oh my captain was leaving," <laughs> and they were like devastated because they all thought they were going to get fired. But Penny's loyal. You know, she was always going to keep Lori, even though Lori knows looks nothing like Gina Davis. So they gave her that copper, like mm. Prince Valiant, half wig that Lori hated. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, that
2: sort of
1: match does
0: not Tina's hair
2: color. Yeah. And there was an awkward, um there was an awkward tension between the two that Penny didn't love. They sort of moved awkwardly around each other in front of the camera. And apart, you know, they were more comfortable. Does that not work
0: well though? Because like there's a tension, yeah. but it's like of course they come back together and they have a renewed understanding like i do love the uh coming of age aspect of this movie in terms of uh friendships and moving out of your hometown and kind of finding your adult self but also i feel like they they have this interesting arc with that tension where like they have a lot of resentment towards it well mo- it's mostly like Kit's Kit resentment Dottie, yeah. towards dotty and then that kind of gets resolved but for most of the movie i feel like the tension helps that along
2: Absolutely. And Lori poured her insecurities into that character. I, I feel like her performance is underrated. But here she was, like, Point Break hadn't come out yet. Nobody saw her being awesome on a surfboard with Keanu. Um, she was a nobody, and she felt like she was a nobody. And um, she was third billed in the movie. <laughs> but she, ha- she got John Lovitz's salary. She just felt overshadowed. And here was Gina, this, you know, glamazon oscar winner and so i feel like that worked for laurie you know you just felt that and what that you know that scene where she's hyperventilating in a dugout yeah (laughs) covering her face with the mitt yeah that was really her she went straight on daniel day lewis for those scenes she wanted them to be perfect she wanted to get it right and she really did hit that ball that game-winning ball to win the pennant for racine that was her all her
1: I would love to talk about like the use of the ball and the baseball playing in a second. Um, because I think that that is where not that it's a competition, but I think that where the Amazon series fails is it's pretty obvious that the actors aren't that good at baseball. And I yeah. think that that's like a stumbling block that Penny made sure wasn't going to happen in her film, but Madonna is our, is our subject of the week. And I'd love to talk about the casting of Madonna herself because she wasn't the first choice for that role, either.
2: No, the first choice for All the Way May. More She was, uh, you know, envisioned as a brassy Californian, May West type. So that role went to Lindsay Frost, former television actress turned baseball mom um, that left the business. But she uh, had to drop out of the movie because she was attached to star in a pilot. So... Penny lost her May, and she was like, oh, now I have to start over again. She was reading a magazine interview, um, a profile of Madonna, where Madonna expressed her desire to become a movie star, which really wasn't a secret.
1: <laughs> no, certainly not. Yeah,
2: right. No, not a secret at all. Um, Penny had an amazing eye for casting, and she liked to play around with things. You know, She even tested Pat Riley to play Jimmy Dugan. So she was like, let me test Madonna. So she met with Madonna and Madonna, she had her eye on Kit Keller, you Mm -hmm. know, a a bigger role. Mm -hmm. And Penny's like, I don't think you can carry a movie, Mo. So (laughs) I think you've got to be part of the ensemble. And Madonna is just total overachiever, perfectionist. And she takes the gig because she gets to be in a movie with Gina Davis, who had won an Oscar for Accidental Tourist. For Tom Hanks, who'd had a series of flops, but hey, he's a beloved film star, the Jimmy Stewart, America's dad of our time. So she just, and it was a challenge. Every actress in Hollywood wanted this role, because how rare was it to play a woman baseball player? That just never yeah. happens.
0: I, I think it, sometimes there can be like a a hidden uphill challenge for singers who want to be actors and because, especially if they're very, very famous in singing, it's almost like, I'm not saying there's an entitlement, but there's almost like an expectation that they should be just sort of cast uh, sight unseen because they've already achieved so much in one field but it's all it's definitely like it serves them best to kind of start in the middle where like like yeah. cam- a cameo or yeah
1: and madonna had been in desperately seeking susan where she is more of a lead and she's not as good in that movie as she is in this one in a League of their own she like jumps off the screen and 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 she does kind of melt into the rest of the peaches and in, in such a great Way. I think some of it's the hair and the costuming and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I think that Penny knew how to cast people and knew how to basically, like, you don't talk back to Penny Marshall.
2: No. I mean, and Madonna just wants the director's approval. So she was willing to do whatever it took, you know, and Hollywood was wary of her potential to carry a film. But they did want to capitalize on her popularity, and that was Penny's stroke of genius. So they get to filming, and but first they rehearse. And Madonna works harder than anyone has ever seen anyone work in their lives. She gets up at 4 a.m. and jogs 8 to 10 miles a day. You know, somebody once saw her jogging um, on the coast of Lake Michigan. And then she'd go to baseball rehearsals you know, batting practice. And she's like, anyone who stays here until we can't see the ball, I'm buying you dinner. So she kind of made everyone else raise their game because they don't want to disappoint Madonna, Mm -hmm. who's Lori Petty called the Empire State Building. She's like, I'm not supposed, I can't call you Madonna to me You're the Empire State Building, you're iconic. So, and then Madonna would do rehearsals for the Bucket's dance sequence afterwards. So she was really like, I mean, she was, her work ethic was on point for and sure. So
1: she, and so she was great at a lot of things. Baseball was not necessarily one of them. No. And, and so she is paired up with another cast member as like a duo. And that is reflected. It's not like a mystery that's reflected on screen too, that she and Rosie are paired up as like an Abbott and Costello number. And, but that, also was true behind the scenes too that rosie taught her how to play ball
2: absolutely um, they were called roe and mo on mm-hmm, set mm-hmm. i think it was too much effort to say their full names for penny and she was like roe and mo mm-hmm. um, she's like she's like roe you teach mo how to play ball mo you teach you teach roe how to set her hair
1: <laughs> having listened to a bunch of interviews of penny marshall <laughs> to prepare for this your impression is like pretty good it's like i would say a a to A thank minus you. penny Marshall impression.
0: It's like your whole body shifts to yeah. become a different person. <laughs> it's well, great. it's so
2: funny. Because p- over like my all my interview, thank you. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna be riding high on that compliment all day. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but like over the course of many interviews for, for this book, everyone did an unsolicited penny impression. So it's I sort of picked it up too. <laughs> but yeah, but but back to Ro and Mo. So they really bonded. They really bonded on the set of this film. Um, Rosie was initially intimidated by Madonna, but she had seen Truth or Dare before meeting her. And she was like, okay, I connect with this woman. Um, We have the same background. They both lost their mothers to breast cancer when they were very young. And they both came from big, noisy, uh, middle-class Catholic families. And Rosie could stand up to Madonna. Yeah. (laughs) She could handle Madonna. Madonna was terrifying for these girls from the Midwest. Who were in the movie who played the ringers, you know, the girls who could actually play baseball. She would just try to get a rise out of them, try to provoke them. You know, it was all about shock value with her. But Rosie wasn't, you know, I mean, she could roll with that. She was also not a threat to Madonna. So she wasn't like Ellen Sue, the beauty queen. And she wasn't like Gina Davis. You know, uh, basically, who started out as a model before she became a celebrated actress. So how do I say this uh, diplomatically? Rosie's, um, she's an every woman. (laughs) And she wasn't a threat to Madonna, who was competitive with other women. In essence, I think she was a mother figure for Madonna. And um, to fill the void of her mother's death. I think Madonna collected mother figures her entire life. Uh, Debbie Mazar is one of them for sure. And Rosie was another one and just the best friend you could ever want. Madonna's still making headlines to this day. And I think people would rather Madonna just, you know, lock herself in her home and never leave and never keep trying to make music. I think people are harsh about her unfairly, but Rosie's always on Instagram defending her. And it's really great to see, like, everyone should have a friend like Rosie.
0: I really like watching old Rosie interview clips. Her comedy, too. She's She was really ahead of the curve in yeah. realizations that I think collectively we have about pop culture a bit, like, too late or after the fact. This is top of mind because of the... Like that '70s show reevaluation that we're all doing this week, Ooh, and yeah. there was there was a Rosie inter- <laughs> there was a Rosie. I don't want to get too into it, but there was a Rosie interview that was like trending on TikTok or whatever, and Rosie's talking with ashton and mila before they were married and ashton is talking about how he and danny masterson are like pranking everyone on set and it comes off oh about like their first kiss like mila and ashton's first kiss and how he's gonna like basically like stick his tongue down this 15 year old's throat like and not even and like danny put him up to it and then rosie was just like well every actor has a different process but like her face is <laughs> her face and her tone just say everything
1: yeah rosie especially on her show did not suffer fools even when she was in the closet she she couldn't really or didn't really ever pretend like she liked someone she didn't like or that something was funny when it wasn't funny she was always as you said the every woman and i think that that's like part of her super huge appeal
2: do you remember when Tom Selleck was on her talk show and he was the celebrity ambassador for the NRA?
1: Oh, and she went after him. Yeah, she
2: did. And her career suffered from that. Like she, she got some backlash for speaking out, but this was around um, Columbine. Mm -hmm. So when I interviewed her for this book, this is how serious I can be. Like I'm playful and into celebrity fandoms, but I was like, Rosie, um, Thank you for speaking out for us. Because I was in high school at the time and nobody else was talking like this. And she was the most popular um, daytime talk show of that era besides Oprah. So, I mean, I think she's cool. I'll always be a Rosie fan. Same. I think she's
0: really underrated in our present day. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's ahead of it.
1: While we're on the topic of (laughs) Rosie O'Donnell, there was a... Some interview clip that has been making its way around the internet mm-hmm. of, of her talking about the scene where she is describing her boyfriend who, who is not nice to her and he's ugly and treats her bad mm. and, and unemployed and unemployed and how Penny, after a couple of takes, like kind of marched up to Rosie and says, Ro, this isn't one of those gay movies. <laughs> and kind of made her tone it down because that was essentially Rosie's character coming out
2: oh yeah that was the whole subtext she was explaining why she stayed with her deadbeat boyfriend she was like because I was the weird girl mm-hmm. you know and I didn't fit in and now you know and now I do and we're all, all right and she rips up his uh, photo the and picture, throws yeah. it out the window and and K- Keller is like nodding in agreement <laughs> Like, a lot of queer audiences also related to that scene and sensed the subtext. And Rosie felt that her character, Doris Murphy, was gay and in love with May and didn't know what to do with those feelings and didn't know that those feelings meant that she was gay. And so she recited the monologue as Gans and Mandel had written it. And Penny goes, Ro. Rosie goes, what? She's like, stop doing it that way. It's not a gay thing. And Rosie (laughs) Rosie understood that character as Penny could not, and just recited it the same way. And um, I think it's a really powerful scene uh, that resonates to this day. But I also think that Penny was afraid uh, to acknowledge the history. She was afraid that it would damage sales. And, you know, she was one of the peaches Renee Coleman told me she wasn't gay. She was in a boys club. I think that Penny didn't understand why that would be important to Rosie or to, you know, (laughs) women who play ball who happen to be gay. Mm
1: -hmm. And I understand the idea like incrementalism, right? Like it's a miracle that the girls baseball movie even gets made. So Penny's not going to poison the water by making it about. Uh, gay girls baseball team like that's crazy but like clearly you know (laughs) our society has progressed maybe not far enough but has progressed a little bit that the amazon series deals almost exclusively with the lgbtq side of the all-american girls baseball league and spoilers minor spoilers for the amazon show the single best scene in the entire series rosie shows up
2: oh yeah She shows up and she was the only one who Abby Jacobson called upon. And so she was playing this queer speakeasy owner, you know, she owned this bar where gay people could come and congregate and be safe at a really homophobic time in America that still continues. Mm. So Rosie, I feel like she was playing, she wasn't reprising Doris, but playing an entirely new character. But it was ultimately a devastating, you know, arc that she had because the bar (spoiler alert) was raided and mm-hmm. had to shut down. You know, I thought that the TV series was it didn't have the pizzazz of the movie or that cartoonish humor, mm-hmm. but it did delve into the real history of the league and centered these queer characters and their struggles to themselves and do the sport that they love and the prices that they had to pay to do that like they really had to go to charm school Mm -hmm. Um, I love that the charm school sequences are in every iteration (laughs) of this IP franchise yeah
0: so in the book and since our episode is also partially about Madonna's This Used to Be My Playground I I wanted to know to what extent did any discussion of the song come into it yeah. And what are your thoughts on This Used to Be My Playground in Madonna's catalog? <laughs> because I get the sense as we were rewatching the movie, yes last night, my husband says, "Oh, I forgot that Madonna even sang this song." And I feel like that is largely the and I feel like Madonna too would like to forget that she ever sang this song.
2: <laughs> I mean, people love this song people who are reading my book like they're like oh this is my favorite madonna song my favorite madonna song is cherish give me some bubblegum pop you know stereo gum called this used to be my playground at morose torch ballad yeah and to me it is its lyrics evoke nostalgia and and regrets like why did it have to end like why did this you know, baseball league have to end. Like, it was just so, um, like, it could be she's singing about a breakup, but it could be about leaving the league. It was just cryptic enough that it could be both. (laughs) And so she and Shep Pettibone, her producer, he was really talented. He produced Vogue, which we all know. So they were in the midst of creating her Deep House concept album, very underrated album called Erotica. When they got Mm -hmm. a call from Amy Pascal at Columbia, she's like, could you write a song for the movie? So they halted work on erotica to write this song. That's what we call it a hard pivot. It's a hard pivot because this song has nothing to do with erotica, like erotica is sensual and cutting edge. And this is a wholesome movie that's subversively cutting edge. Yeah, But it's a wholesome family film, which is how it was marketed. So, and Shep Pettibone has nothing to do with that. You know, this guy's cool. He was like the Jack Antonoff of his day, you know, the Jack Antonoff to Madonna's Taylor Swift. So Mm -hmm. what are they doing writing the song? And he had never worked with actual instruments before. So they had an orchestra and they didn't like the strings. And so they had to rework the arrangement and rush to finish the song so that Madonna could hop on a plane and go to the set of Body of Evidence, (laughs) her erotic film. We didn't Um, need Body of Evidence. So the song hits Penny Marshall's desk, so to speak, in post-production of the film. And she brings all the editors into her office. She's like, what do you think? She she's like I hate this song this this song's a piece of crap. There's no way this is going in my movie. A second later, Amy Pascal, a studio executive at Columbia, calls. She's like, "Don't you love the song? It's great. I can't wait to use it in the end credits." <laughs> and um, Madonna was smart enough to send it to Amy and the studio before Penny had a chance to veto it. You know, because she knew Penny wouldn't hmm. like it because Penny's the most negative person ever. So Penny had a fight with the studio about putting it in the, over the end credits. But of course the studio won it's Madonna. Didn't uh, Penny want
0: like, I'm I'm putting contemporary in quotes because these are not contemporary singers, even really for the era because she wanted what in her view, contemporary singers like Carole King and James Taylor and Art Garfunkel to sing i i a couple i think uh Carol King's song was uh an original, and it was like it was like nominated for a Grammy and so on, whereas this used to be my playground, I think was only nominated for a golden globe um but like ostensibly the Carol King song was. More commercially successful or whatever. And, but like Penny, I think went after some like slightly older artists like to create songs that sounded like they came from the 30s or the 40s right and here you have this Madonna song that is pretty 1992 like 1992 slow ballad it's very totally at odds I think with the rest of the songs and the artists that and there aren't many that Penny sought for the film
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, Penny was like, um, she grew up (laughs) in the 50s. Her version of contemporary was James Taylor. Right. um, And Art Garfunkel, who she dated. (laughs) So she didn't really have her finger on the pulse of pop music.
1: Art Garfunkel's a weird guy, man.
2: Yeah, it's such a weird pairing. Like, Paul Simon and Carrie Fisher, I get.
1: I get it. Yeah.
2: Like, I understand that but said um, like
0: I think that 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 it works so well over the end credits I do too I I really like it I was going to come out in defense of this used to be my playground I know that Madonna is not what you would first think of as a ballad singer her voice has never been her selling point but she's got charisma and she really does know how to sell something and I love the placement of this song that is really selling the heartache that something has ended. And like just a few scenes earlier, you hear that certain characters are no longer with us like Jimmy Dugan and Stillwell's mother is, has passed. And and you see like, I think it's the real life all American girl players. It's playing. like half and half. Right? Yeah. Half, yeah. It's yeah. like scenes intersplice that are real, but, all, and then some of the actors, but, I feel like it really works and it's like, it's a time capsule, but it does, it moves me. And I like it as a Madonna song, even if it's not her usual thing, especially for that era.
2: I, I like it because it's not her usual thing. You know, it's like her version of lady Gaga partnering with Tony Bennett. I didn't expect that. You threw me a curveball, and it works over those uh, very bittersweet scenes of Mm -hmm. the actual women playing a real game. I think it, works beautifully and better than carol king's now and forever which was supposed to be over those rolling credits
1: and and madonna has had a history of like doing kind of a, a pastiche of a different era right she like she did sooner or later for dick tracy and you know that also has varying levels of goodness and success but it's like she is she too was like obsessed with that era of filmmaking and and old hollywood and so i think even though it feels kind of 90s-y, there is that Torch song, ballad, 40s, Marla Hooch singing it had to be you.
0: <laughs> One of my favorite scenes
2: in the movie. Oh, oh.
1: singing a Nelson.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Anna. oh gosh. Iconic. <laughs> well, the music video for um, This Used to Be My Playground, it's kind of a throwback too. like she's you know, going through her photo album. She's got the Hedy Lamar hair mm-hmm. and it's very haunting. The song is haunting. And I remember like singing it with my friends and I just responded to the angst. Like mm-hmm. it, it just, it spoke to my tween age angst and it became her 10th number one mm-hmm. single, which Penny was like, it's not gonna, it's not gonna track, but yeah, it, it, It was her 10th number one single, but it was not on the League of Their Own album because of a contract issue. But it ended up on this album called Barcelona Gold, which was a compilation album for the 1992 Olympics
1: so weird so and then later, so weird. And then so later weird.
2: i think it,
0: it like it appeared on a 1995 ballads compilation yeah, of her, for, her yeah, thing, yeah yeah for madonna's <laughs> but yeah i i guess i, I figured that what because madonna was technically on warner brothers no and then uh, something this, like that this album would have come out on columbia
1: i'm guessing that if the price had been right yeah warner would have let the song go But Mm -hmm. Penny didn't give a shit about the song to begin with. So she's like, oh, no, we can't get the song on the soundtrack.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's that's just cutthroat. Oh, my gosh. But Penny also didn't she felt weary about exploiting Madonna's celebrity. Yeah. Because Warren Beatty had done that with Dick Tracy. Like Madonna, who was too expensive to play Breathless Mahoney? I think it was Kim Basinger who they wanted. So Madonna agreed to work for scale and her paycheck for that movie was like $35,000. And yet, you know, her song, the Sondheim song, sooner or later, it was an Oscar winner and she performed it at the Oscars, which she attended with Michael Jackson. <laughs> um, How's that for nostalgia? But I, Penny was wary of kind of pulling a Warren Beatty, you know? She wanted to create some distance between her and Madonna. And she and Madonna didn't always get along on the set so there might have been some lingering
1: she doesn't let madonna sing the all-american girls baseball league song yes and she she, seems very proud of the fact that she's like madonna's one of the backups
2: yeah it's kind of like to me i didn't feel comfortable with that here's me defending madonna but i was like this you have one of the preeminent singers of the era you should use her She has a good voice. I'm sorry. She does.
1: I think Deborah Winger got in her head, though. And she's like, well, I don't want this to be an Elvis picture. Everyone's just waiting around for her to sing Blue Hawaii.
2: (laughs) Penny was just so worried about what everyone thought. You know, Mm -hmm. everything had to be a focus group Mm -hmm. and um, a conference.
1: Which is why she shot so much. Yeah.
2: Right. Whereas, like, the studio and her producers were like, let's use Madonna. Mm-hmm. And that was the right call. I mean, that's taking the opportunity.
0: I feel like it's not often that you hear about the studios being right, as opposed to the creator. The creators yeah. are usually the ones, who. but, a, but yeah. when you care too much about what audiences are going to think, it's like that, that could potentially put you in a you get too sticky precious, situation. Yeah. yeah.
1: But right. it's a real broken clock situation. Cause the studio also wanted Tom Hanks and Gina Davis to fall in love and kiss at the end of the movie. And Penny was like, I will fucking walk. (laughs) She was.
2: She was like, no, because the the original players were up in arms. They were like, that would Mm -hmm. never happen. That's such a betrayal of Dottie's husband who was off, you know, in the war.
3: Poor Bob.
2: Also,
0: like, Bill Pullman is like the clear winner over. I mean,
2: I love Bill Pullman. the,
0: The budding friendship in the movie between Gina Davis and Tom Hanks is lovely to see, but like, I. I like that they lean more into like, he sees her as an unlikely protege.
1: Yeah.
2: Exactly. And he felt like cutting that love scene, which you can find on YouTube somewhere. Um, what? Uh, yes. Oh, yes. In the archives of YouTube. Tom felt that it was better just to have that lingering uh, affection. Yeah. And maybe that sexual tension because they were office spouses. He thought that worked better than actually using the scene
0: in that that that's, way. So That's much more realistic i think yeah especially considering the era i
1: think and tom hanks did have a bit of a creative role he and penny had worked together obviously on big and that was him doing her a big favor because he was a massive star at the time and now kind of turnabout is fair play she's doing him a favor kind of revitalizing his career but she also gave him his first directorial experience because the (laughs) second unit director on a league of their own is tom hanks
2: yeah, because she had to give him something to do because he would show up to set even for scenes that he wasn't in and just hang out. You know, he would knock on Peach's doors and be like, hey, you want to play ball? And they would put Madonna's chair in center field because Madonna wasn't sitting in the chair. You know, she was in her trailer and they would try to hit it with the ball. <laughs> but, but you know, he was he was a good-natured troublemaker and he just loved the humanity of the set And it just energized him. And I think he thrives in chaos. You know, um, that's how he grew up. You know, he moved from town to town with his father and his siblings. And then he was just, you know, an actor going from movie to movie to movie. So he was just like, he didn't want to be stuck in his trailer. So Penny let him direct the C camera, which um, shot scoreboard footage. (laughs) and He was was also um, shadowing her, I think, in a way because he wanted to be a director, That Thing You Do, which you guys yeah. did an episode on. Yeah. Uh, and he meant he, yeah. Yeah, so he, uh, he was learning on the job, but also being incredibly Hanksian, gathering material for his anonymous gossip column on set, which he called Peach Fuzz, you know, fuzz with a <laughs> Ph. And it arrived every Friday on Xerox copies. And it was like, this person was canoodling with this person. Oh, my God. Different wry, whimsical observations. And then toward the end of filming, it was discovered that it was Tom Hicks. He's like gossip girl slash uh,
1: gossip girl. Yeah. He loves typewriters.
2: I called him Lady Whistledown. That's that's
0: I was trying to remember the the Bridgerton name. I'm like, what is the name <laughs> of the writer on Bridgerton? Oh miss yes, he was Lady Whistledown. The, the, that's how he dreamed to be Lady Whistledown.
2: <laughs> I'm like, oh my god.
1: The funny thing to me is that famously Tom Hanks like loves typewriting, like typewriting letters. So I can picture him like head of hopper style like with a stogie like writing the, the peach fuzz <laughs> on an on an antique Underwood typewriter and then xeroxing it at the production office.
2: That is exactly the mental image yeah. that I had too.
1: And like laughing to himself about how <laughs> quippy he's being.
2: Should I include this or Ooh. is this too risqué?
1: So, uh, okay, it's time for my most scorching take of the movie.
2: Let it rip. I'm ready.
1: And I want—I need your thoughts. Betty Spaghetti is the left fielder, I think. And she is played by Penny Marshall and Rob Reiner's daughter. So yes. she doesn't have a ton of scenes, but her scenes are very crucial, right? She's the one whose husband has the Jimmy Dugan card The Jimmy Dugan Rips up, and she also is the one whose husband dies when we think it's going to be Dotty's husband, Mm -hmm. right? And the the messenger has like forgotten the name, which is like one of the like most harrowing scenes in in any movie.
2: So inaccurate too. They would remember the name.
1: What? Yeah, Uh but it's drama, right? But my scorching hot take is George. I don't care about George dying. Fuck George, because the one thing that we know about George is that he. Beats up on Betty, right? And if anything happens to that Jimmy Dugan card, George is going to hit her. And but so. But does she really
0: say that he's g- going to hit me? Because I got the sense that maybe I need to give that scene another watch. Because like, I definitely got the sense that he would be incredibly upset. But, but not to physically. the point of physicality.
1: I got the sense that he was going to hit her. And so when he yeah. dies, I'm like, you know what? You're I'm free. fine with it. Yeah, you're good, <laughs> Betty. Do better. You're
2: free. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. Yes. Yes, I agree with that hot take. I do. And also, George, this was not in the movie, but George at the end of the movie was supposed to like come back from the war and be he alive. To the re- yes, he was alive, actually. <laughs> Fuck
1: that he- nonsense.
2: <laughs> it was just an injury.
1: <laughs> no. No, no. <laughs> Get that shit out of my face
2: well you kind of get the
0: sense like that husbands with the exception of bill pullman yeah just bill pullman you kind of get the sense that if these women are married that those those husbands in some way are making the women's lives harder like with, uh, I, I'm forgetting her name now, but with the son still well. And, oh, yeah. And she's trying to explain to Tom Hanks, like, my husband just wants to look at the want ads. He can't he look after our son. Yeah. And and uh, <laughs> I should just take him and shut up about it.
1: Justice for Nelson. Nelson oh, is, God. besides Bill Pullman, the only good guy.
0: Nelson, yes. Nelson's Nelson. the only um, good
2: guy. So Alan Wilder was like the first choice to play Nelson. He was one of the members of the Steppenwolf theater company in Chicago. So John Malkovich, Gary. East, East, yeah, Very nice. prestigious, like serious theater. Mm-hmm. But so he, when the movie came to town, they were like, so excited, you know, um, Tracy let's try it out. And he was like one of the co-founders of Steppenwolf. He tried out for the Nelson. <laughs> But um, Marla Hooch, or Megan Cavanaugh, the actress who played her, was like, I love Alan Wilder for this character. She saw his sweetness. Alan would, like, walk you to your door after a date and kiss you on the cheek if you let him. So he had this sweetness that they were looking for in that part. And Bill Pullman was just the most handsome actor at that time. You know, he was just a shoe in for that role. And he played better as a love interest Uh, when they were screening um, Jimmy Dugan's with Deborah, So there was some, like, flame there. Mm -hmm. But he was up for that role, too. But they liked him better as Bob Henson, the very unrealistically supportive husband of Dottie Henson.
0: I also wonder (laughs) if you would find someone that good-looking and seemingly a little suave, accidentally suave, in, like, middle-of-nowhere Oregon. But that's just my, you know.
1: Oh, Yeah. (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. I always wondered how realistic that could be. But.
1: <laughs> he's like uh, Carrie Elway's in The Princess Bride. He was like, oh, oh yeah. boy. love." Penny um, would
2: cast people. Uh, he's Carrie Elway's is so hot in that movie. Oh, my gosh. But Penny the, would cast people that she had a crush on. She had a crush on David right Nice he played, Oh, um,
1: Ira Lowenstein.
2: He, she, yeah, oh, He had yeah. Um, his picture up in her office. And he was very hot. To
1: this day, a good-looking dude.
2: So when I interviewed him, so he lives in Bolinas. I live in San Francisco. He lives in Bolinas, which is just over the Golden Gate Bridge.
1: Just give us his address. We'll-
2: <laughs> I know, which is very earthy of him. He's a he's a kind of a hippie. He preferred to sleep in his trailer rather than stay in a hotel room. Nice, nice. <laughs> like he's that guy. But yeah. talking to him, I talked to him on the phone, and you could just feel that
1: he's hotness. he's Ed Murrow. He's he's.
2: He's, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I was like, I get it. And he's so <laughs> smart and just down to earth at the same time. I was like, Oh, I understand this now. I know, get twice it. my age, <laughs> but whatever.
1: And not supposed <laughs> to be hot in the movie. I like that. Penny's like this. I want the Lowenstein guy. Him, <laughs> oh, yeah. Art Garfunkel.
2: And the Lowenstein guy. And he was more fun to hang out with than Tom Hanks was during the movie. Cause Tom Hanks was like a family man. Chet was there and um, you know Chet Hayes was mm-hmm. like a baby at the time. And mm-hmm. Colin, his son, was also there, and also Rita. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't like hanging out with everyone after rapping.
1: He's got a column to write.
2: Right. David Strith there, and would like, you know, go to jazz clubs and hang with the girls. And he played Truth or Dare with them one night. And I was like Megan, you know, who played Marla, which mm-hmm. I was like, tell me what what did you guys do? She's like, I can't tell you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that rules. Oh, it's that. That's amazing. It's that yeah. interesting. Nice. So
1: I have one final question. It's for everybody. Yeah. It's the it's the question of the climax of the movie. Yeah. Does Dottie drop the ball on purpose?
0: Should I answer first? I'm gonna let Aaron go first. Yeah.
1: Well, Aaron might have a leg- like, a, like an actual.
0: Oh, okay. Can I non-interpretive <laughs> answer? First. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Can I- my interpretive answer is well, somewhere between yes and no. <laughs> the little okay. space between yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> like, the ambiguity. <laughs> I love it. That's yeah. what
2: yeah. great cinema is about.
0: I mean, I think like it's that scene's purpose is like left up to the audience's interpretation by design. Sure. Uh, but I think that it's clear. Dottie was never, if you've ever it, like, if you know how to be good at something without loving it, I think that's an unusual space to find yourself in, but it can happen. And she just happens to be great for her. Like baseball is this hobby probably a great way to pass the time while her husband's at war and in addition to working but she just happens to be great at something that she doesn't love the way her sister kit obviously like lives and breathes it you really don't get the sense that when dottie leaves that she has any emotional ambiguity she's like i am ready i want to go home and i yeah. want to have children hanks even and,
1: says like you don't love it enough right
0: yeah and yeah and feminism is embracing it's not it's not about you should do it's about what do i want to do and can you and i'd like society to support me in that depending on whether it's be on the baseball diamond or whether it's a more homemaker-y life and that's what she genuinely wanted so uh i i think that like she did drop the ball on purpose, but I think if she'd really wanted to, she could have held the ball. So I think mostly she's doing this for her sister, but like it's also like I don't love this enough to hang on to it.
1: I I completely agree with you. I think that this is the first I everything you said and to add on, this is the first time that she's ever put her sister first. Right? If throughout the entire picture she's in competition with kit and even when she doesn't mean to she still gets the better of kit exploits kit kits traded to the to the racing bells um and this is the first time that she is able to allow her sister to be first she would take that secret to her grave probably
2: yeah i mean kit wanted it the most yeah so Mm-hmm. Cheating, dropping the ball on purpose to let Kit win is an act of love, sacrifice for her sister, and I love that take. And that was my take from the beginning, um, because first of all, I was pissed that Dottie lost. I Me was like, too. I mm-hmm. was just pissed. I was like, "This is the worst ending to a movie ever." And you know, I was uh, you know of the mind that Kit Keller was annoying and just insolent, and what a bratty little girl. Yeah. And uh, now I'm pro, you know, I'm pro Kit. And I think she deserved she deserved her success. So I was of that mind that, you know, Dottie cheated to win. But after talking to a number of athletes, you know, Abby Wambach, Jessica Mendoza you know, World Cup champions, gold medalists, and some some baseball scholars. Yes, this is a niche industry. I'm now of the mind that um, Dottie dropped that ball because she dropped that ball. An athlete would never drop the ball on purpose because that would be betraying the game. And the integrity of the game is far more important than your allegiance to your sister or your team.
0: But is Dottie really an athlete? Other than just being good at it, like she's a, a natural
1: athlete, but is she a capital A? She
0: she doesn't live and breathe it. Right. She
2: doesn't love it as much as Kit, but she loves it, which is a secret that I think she'll take with her to her grave, and a secret mm-hmm. that she um that you know that comes out in the open that she finally accepts toward the end of the movie when she realizes, oh my god, yeah, I was excellent at something. I was a trailblazer, and I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, these women, you know, these women didn't think of themselves as feminist pioneers. They thought of themselves as on the front lines of the war, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping the game of baseball alive. They thought this was their patriotic duty. Not Mm -hmm. until the 1980s did they realize, oh my God, we should be in the history books. We should have our exhibit at Cooperstown, no matter how small it is. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think Dottie definitely dropped that ball. Not on purpose. <laughs> wow. All
0: right. Well, that about wraps up our interview <laughs> portion of this episode. But before we let you go, Erin, please tell us like where can we find the book? Anything else you'd like to plug? Where can we find more of your writing?
2: <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Aaron Lee Carlson, L-E-I-G-H. And you can subscribe to my sub It's called You've Got Mail, and it's just my pop culture writing. Yes, it's free. It's free. I love writing it. I think you might enjoy it. And then my website, AaronLeeCarlson.com. Oh, God, no, it's (laughs) AaronLCarlson.com.
1: And what's the title of your book?
2: It's called No Crying in Baseball.
1: Colon. Such a long subtitle.
2: The inside story of a league of their own, big stars, dugout drama, and a home run for Hollywood that's a killer title i love how you have two colons Double i colons. came up with that myself love it oh yeah I, I can write a subhead from years in the magazine industry that i can do yes
1: <laughs> thank you so much for joining us aaron <laughs> thank
2: you guys thank you i love your podcast yeah i can't wait to listen and i'm gonna keep listening because this is exactly the kind of podcast that i need in my life i feel like it was made for me thank you
1: In her interview with Kevin Smith on his podcast, Movie Makers, Penny Marshall summed up the theme of the movie as don't be ashamed of your talent. And she claims that Steven Spielberg asked her if he could steal the frame story of like things happening in the beginning and then flashing back and then going back to the the present uh, for his best picture winning movie Schindler's List. Because he was going to production as A League of Their Own was was coming out.
0: That is a movie I can only ever watch once.
1: I think it's really a one-timer. It is but, a one-timer. <laughs> but even though A League of Their Own only received an 81% on Rotten Tomatoes, in the last 32 years, it has become an indelible baseball classic, sports movie classic, 90s classic. And it's left its mark on movie history and sports history worldwide. Thanks to this movie, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was included in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. So the event that they're going to in the movie is like a fictionalized event Mm -hmm. of them opening an exhibit in the Baseball Hall of Fame. They didn't actually do that until after the movie came out.
0: See that? That's cool. It's crazy. I did not realize that.
1: And there are props from the movie in the exhibit, which, according to Penny, is Considerably smaller than the one Aww. in the. There was like a different, bigger exhibit in a different museum. Mm-hmm. the The interview that she did with Kevin Smith, by the way, this podcast series is I, I think only fourteen episodes long, and like eight of them are Penny Marshall. It's just like she has incredible stories. I, I highly recommend taking a listen. But this was sort of towards the end of her life. She had trouble breathing and and kind of her mm-hmm. her speech was a little uh sluggish, so it was tough to get the full details but i think that there was already a museum exhibit somewhere and it wasn't until after the movie came out that it made its way into the actual baseball hall of fame but despite jimmy dugan's assertions every time i see this movie on tv or any repertory screenings that are in la there is never a dry eye in the house (laughs) Whether it's the story of friendship or family or love or even the little bits of the LGBT story points that they were able to sneak in there. Penny Marshall's masterpiece is rich with heart and it proves that there is indeed crying in baseball movies.
0: Yeah, why not both?
1: Why not both?
0: We started doing a question of the week, which I believe just shows up on our Instagram, no?
1: And uh, Spotify. There's a Spotify poll that you can answer.
0: Well, this week's question is keeping in mind baseball names like Diamond Dottie, the queen be- of diamonds, the queen of diamonds, Betty Spaghetti. What are some other ones?
1: All the way May.
0: All the way May, thank you. Yeah, of course. What is your baseball name? If you could just pick a baseball name like let's let's do some play on words, let's let's pun it out.
1: Mine would be Notorious VIV.
0: <laughs> have you been just like hanging on to that
1: oh yeah so ready <laughs> 15 years in, in the back pocket
0: oh my god okay well I, I mine would probably be like play on the word broad
1: i bet right yeah gotta be gotta be some kind of broad
0: bad broad
1: bad broads big bad yeah. broadski
0: big bad Brodsky. more more like scared of the ball Broad. <laughs> <laughs> broad <laughs> wait i actually played baseball in the last two years it was on Ooh. like uh this like community team for like one day and i surprised myself at being able to a hit the ball and run
1: hey good job double good job
0: thank you but i nothing's changed as far as like being H- on the on the sports. Yeah. I hate I still hate sports and I'm I'm terrified at because like my reaction time is slow to so a lot. <laughs> so anyway, that's our question of the week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, check out our other episodes. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We're on Instagram at the InSync Pod. Find us there and let us know the answer to the question of the week. What is your baseball nickname?
0: We'll choose randomly from the best dancers, and the winner will get some InSync swag.
1: That's it for InSync this week. We've been edited by Emily Reeves. Our production coordinator is Kyle Bosch. Social media producer Dale Stanfley, executive produced by Tommy West, original music by Taylor Barefoot. We're big fans of Taylor
0: on this podcast. The biggest fans.
1: InSync is a production of Gotham West Studios, and InSync is produced by Gotham West Studios. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the InSync Pod.
0: As always, thank you for listening, and thank you again to Aaron Carlson.
1: We'll see you next time.
3: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue! All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty-nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty-nine a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon.